and we see Jesus in the people here and it's a blessing unto us. Doesn't seem like a week since I was here. For all you Latin scholars, tempest fugit. Time does fly and seems to be flying faster and faster. And um, last week you had an American preach. This week you'll have the word in Irish. Banach they live galer. Blessings of God be on you all. Amen. Um, I want to talk this morning on Psalm 19. And the reason I picked Psalm 19 was that a few weeks ago, I was just looking for um, something edifying for chairing in the church over at Wantirna. And um, I read Psalm 19. But I didn't get to, to, to speak on it because, as often happens, the Lord moved in another way and, and um, someone else brought something that was of value. So I just kept it in my heart. But I felt, when I was asked by John to come here this morning, that Psalm 19 is a wonderful psalm. I thought also that maybe in preaching it this morning that it would be um, maybe something that's not preached on very often. Then I had a quick look on the, just to see you know, how often it's preached, and I found there was an awful lot of sermons on Psalm 19, so I can't claim any originality this morning, but nonetheless, it's the Word of God, and I, I pray that He does um, use me this morning to, to um, proclaim His Word and to be a blessing to, to all of us this morning. Now, our brother Bill, Bill Randall, it was a wonderful weekend last weekend, I was thoroughly blessed by his visit, and he stayed with us, and uh, it was a wonderful, and he spoke about over the weekend, I can't remember whether it was here last Sunday or one of the other meetings about delusion, God sending a delusion. And in a way, what I have to speak about this morning, there is an element of it that relates to delusion. Because you would have to be, I would say, deluded or willfully blind to deny God, deny his reality and deny his creation. And, um, you know, what do you say to the atheist, the agnostic, the skeptic? You know, when words aren't enough, because sometimes when you talk to such people, they'll lead you around in circles. Some people are very good with words, I'm not. You can get led in all different directions and down all sorts of rabbit trails. And you have to come back to something foundational. And I, I think that Psalm 19, if you can come back to that and point somebody to Psalm 19, it actually speaks very, very strongly, perhaps better than we can often put into words the gospel or the things of God. And it's interesting, Psalm 19, I've called this message this morning God's Great Witnesses because there's two wonderful witnesses in Psalm 19 and two declarations, I would say. One is the opening part of the psalm which concerns his wonderful and his mighty creation and the other is something that we know is held in great value in this church and should be in all churches that are believing churches is God's word, the word of God, the, the wonderful value and power and authority that resides in the Word of God. Now, there's many philosophies and different logical arguments that um, you can enter into concerning God and his reality. And uh, I just listed a couple here. And all of these, by the way, are touched in Psalm 19. And they're all used by apologists and people who would um, you know, relate the Word of God. One is a cosmological argument some fancy words here, but it's really just natural, it's cosmological, it's just natural revelation, and it's talking about just the heavens and the creation and the wonder that God has put around us. 
And there's something different about the heavens, of course. When we stand on the earth, we can touch the earth. We can look at mountains. We can look at trees and rivers and, and that element of his creation. But there's something a little bit different about, about going out into the, the universe because we're looking at something that we can't necessarily uh, walk on or touch. We can't understand the end of it, the beginning or the end of it. So it's sort of, in, in a way, a, a, an even stronger uh, witness or testimony of God's creative wonder. There's what's called, and there's another fancy word, a teleological argument. And the teleological argument relates to this evidence that we see, again, would you be, you'd be foolish to deny just the creative genius and creative and the, the design genius of God. Because we look at the world and we see how everything is in perfect balance and um, you know, precision. There's precision throughout. Precision to the degree that if you know, things were altered very slightly, if it was a couple of degrees tilt this way or a couple of more hundred thousand kilometers nearer the sun or further than the sun, we'd have disaster and uh, we'd perish. So there's that, that element as well. And there's a, um, a moral argument. That also is in the psalm because this is a moral universe and our brother Bill preached on that last week as well. It's a moral universe because God's laws are there and um, we have to acknowledge them and be obedient to them. And the last big word is it's, it, there's an anthropological element. And anthropos just relates to, to man and mankind. If we look at ourselves, we're triune beings. We create a body, soul, and spirit. And we're created with an ability to relate to God. And, um, you know, just a, a funny aside, there was this, a thing I read it's a long time ago. And it just shows the futility, perhaps, of, of people or the scientists or the educational ones who deny God. And the, the, you might have heard this, but the, the, uh, the story that went behind it was that they put so many chimpanzees into a room and gave them a typewriter each. And uh, they were thinking about Shakespeare. Of course, Shakespeare, the well-known Shakespeare, is to be or not to be. That is the question. So they put these, these uh, monkeys with typewriters in the room and left them go for it. And uh, they wanted to see, of course, how, how uh, we evolved from monkeys and how they're so close to us in... Um, intelligence and ability. So this went on for a long time. They were there thrashing away in the typewriters for months and months and months. And eventually the scientists went to check and they found something. And they were getting excited. They picked up the piece of paper and this monkey had typed to be or not to be. That is the hash slash hyphen asterisk. <laughs> anyway. That's the funny aside. So, so anyway, we are more than apes. We are more than evolved as the world tries to push down our throat daily in the educational system and in every form of media. We are created as triune beings and we're created to relate to God. And um, that's where our fulfillment comes, when that broken link, we heard about this morning with Theo, that, that was broken when, during the fall. When that link or that relationship is established, then we, we thrive and we, we, um, we found our place. Our place is united with God, relating to God in a born-again relationship. Um, so all those, all those four um, aspects or means of presenting about God are actually in the psalm. So the Bible is interesting. It doesn't try to persuade or argue in great detail as to why there's a God. Or it just declares and if 
You know, it's interesting, if you, if you look at uh, Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and so on. You go to that first chapter, you'll find that God is mentioned 22 times, so it's obvious that he is the author of that chapter, and it's just a proclamation. It doesn't try to persuade us or, or give us good reasons, it just states it out, and we have to accept it, and we're wise to accept it. So that's the creative side. Then if you look at one uh, chapter, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, in the beginning it was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And through him all things were made, and without him was nothing made that was made. That creative side again, but the emphasis on the Word. And again, this comes out of Psalm 19. So the creation and the Word. And, um, you know, it's good to reflect on these things. So there's two two separate main messages that um, are proclaimed in Psalm 19. We'll start with the first one, which is really the message from the heavens. Let's, let's read. It's good to read the scripture publicly. Let's read. Psalm 19, verse 1 to 6. The heavens declared the glory of God, and the firmament showed his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and the words to the end of the world. In them had he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiced as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven and a circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Now, apart from being the word of God, is also beautifully poetic. And uh, wonderful imagery. And uh, you can, you know, it's just beautiful to, to read and to recite that. Now, isn't it interesting how we as beings, human beings, we want signs, we want um, evidence of God, something we can see, wonders, miracles. We look for these things to, to support or to, or to um, maybe to show others signs and wonders. There's a lot spoke about in the Bible, people seeking signs and wonders. Yet, we just look up. And we look up and we look up at the, the sky, we look at the, the um, creation. And that alone should be enough if we're honest in ourselves and don't willfully want to be ignorant and deny to, to demonstrate to us that God is real and, and his creation is real and, and it's done by him. And, um, you know... Even something, you know, thoughts. There's some, there's some thoughts that we can't contain in our mind, no matter how great we think our minds are. I mean, have you ever tried to rationalize infinity, what infinity means? You know, where is there a beginning, where is there an end? Or to just picture yourself taking off on a spaceship or something, going continuously out there, and try to visualize or envisage the end. Those sort of things, our mind, it's beyond the bounds that God has created us to, to operate in. We can't, we can't think them through. That in itself even should make us realize you know, we are limited beings and there's one greater than us who has created us and has given us an inkling of such a thing but we can't see the end of it or bring it to a conclusion. Now one day perhaps we will when we see him face to face some of these wonderful mysteries are opened up and explained to us but um, right now it's something just to, to reflect on and just to you 
know, to think about. Some things are just beyond us, and, you know, we, um, we won't um, get an answer in this life to them as to what, what they, they are. Now, David wrote the psalm, and perhaps, you know, he looked up into the heavens. I don't know, maybe he was, he was a shepherd. He, uh, he was pursued, certainly, by Saul, so he would have been out in the, the desert areas of Israel a lot, and, um, you know, certainly out there, we, we've seen it, you can look up in the sky on a, on a dark night, and um, what's on display is magnificent. There's, um, you know, a stellar host, and, and shooting stars, and, you know, cloudy galaxies, everything, everything he, he saw, we can see. And, um, you know, that inspired David, I believe, that would have drawn his attention to God. God's creation, it really is glorious. It's glorious in its size and expanse. We don't know the beginning, we don't know the end. It's glorious, as we mentioned, I mentioned the word teleological a few minutes ago. Just the engineering design and the precision is quite amazing. And uh, it's so finely balanced. And uh, it's glorious in its beauty. You know, we think this is the fall and this is the world after the fall. What must it have been like at the beginning in Genesis 1 at the creation? You know, when we come to the millennium, we will see a restoration to some degree and get an, a sight of what that must have been like then. Praise the Lord. So that's, um, that's evident. God is glorious in that he's been so good to us to actually make all this available. It's there for a reason. We see it and it points us to God and we glorify God for it. We were created to worship God and to bring him glory. And... Uh, we should give him that glory. Instead of what we see, we see every foolish explanation, every possible side argument to argue why there is no God and why all these things happen by accident or happen from a couple of molecules or you know, whatever people say. I mean, quite often it's amazing how the most educated people can really be the most stupid of people as well to, to pursue and to, to hold up such arguments. And, you know... The simplest person, and again, I think our brother Bill says this, the simplest person who reads the Word of God is more in tune and knows more what's going on about the present age and about what's to come and what's to happen you know, than anybody in the UN or any highfalutin you know, educated politician or writer or commentator. You know, we, we have that. We have the plumb line and we have the, um, the basis all commentary here before us. What does it say in verse 2? Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. So the day, night, and the seasons, they're in order. And what are they? They're giving a constant declaration of God. The whole seasonal cycle, the cycle of day and night, they again testify to a God of order. And, you know, we, we're so used to them, I guess, day to day, we, we just, uh, just another day, we go about our, our business and do our work and whatever, but just stop and stand back and think about it. You know, they all testify to God. The day itself, the day is the light. We think of, of daylight, we think of safety, we think of things being in the open, we think of work. Perhaps we think of the time where it speaks of revelation where there'll be no more night and, um, you know, it'll be bright all the time through the glory of God. Perhaps in the darkness we think of maybe fear or being frightened. 
We think of rest. Perhaps you can see it as a picture of the eternal darkness that we're to be aware of and that we think of when we think of our lost family or lost, lost um, friends. There's an eternal darkness ahead that's coming. And, uh, you know, we're not right with God. That lies ahead for those who, who reject and, and who, um, you know, who don't obey what he said in his word. And, uh, you know, it's not a place I want to be. And uh, I praise God it's not a place that we will be if we obedient to the Lord and, and um, follow what he said. Amen. So, what could you say? If there was no more radio or no more TV, if all the preachers were silenced and the gospel wasn't proclaimed verbally, still the creation would proclaim God. And uh, you think of people locked up in, in, in prisons around this world for their for standing for Jesus, for their faith, perhaps denied access to the word of God, never hear a preacher, but they can still, you know, they've perhaps store the word of God in their mind, they memorize scripture, or they can just think of his creation. It can't be silenced. You know, God can't be silenced. He's real around us, and um, amen. There's no speech nor language where the voice is not heard. The line has gone out through all the earth. God's glory, it's there for all to see. And uh, no matter what language you speak, whether it's Afrikaans or Gaelic or Irish or English or whatever. It's there for all to see. There's a language language we all understand. And um, it's just that language that's the evidence of God around us. You know, no one can deny that they were never told or never knew of God because he's made himself so abundantly clear and evident. That excuse won't stand up. And I often, when you're debating people, they'll say, well, what about the this far lost tribe in the Amazon or whatever that no one ever got to. Even God, even they're aware of God. It actually reminds me of the story, I don't know if you remember, the story of Helen Keller. You might have learned that when you were in school. Helen Keller was um, a, child, a girl in America, I think with the 1840s, maybe, maybe later, maybe the 1870s. And when she was a, a baby, she was 19, 20 months old, she became blind and deaf. And... Um, as a result, you know, never seen or learned um, speech correctly. And there was a lady who came into her life, I can't remember her name, and um, she persevered through, and remember this in the film, the, you know, a lot of hard times with, with Helen to actually give her the ability to communicate. And uh, you know, she'd be breaking dishes and throwing things at her because of her frustration. But she taught her to write by signing on the palm of her hand. And um, the story goes on anyway that uh, eventually she, she learned to communicate and the pastor one day was communicating this way and he, and he wrote the word God on her, on her palm and she said, I always knew, even before she was taught to communicate, she knew of God. So there's a sense that we know God anyway. You know, there's a, God's put that sense of his, pre, of his reality inside us, not just his creation. You know, it's, it's in us as well. There's a sense of God. And uh, she, she demonstrated that by, you know, in that case. So. And what's God's crowning creation? It's mankind. And uh, he reveals himself to man. And he wants us to relate to him. And we're created to relate to God and to bring him glory. And uh, 
I want to just read Romans 1.20, scripture. Flagged a few scriptures here. It says, Therefore, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Amen. So we don't have an excuse. Verse, second half of verse 4 talks about the, um, the tabernacle of the sun. And again, it's this beautiful poetic language. And it, in a sense, the sun is used to describe, I believe, the, the glory of God. You know, we can't, although the sun may be covered on a cloudy day, it's still there. And we can't escape from the heat and the effect. I mean, without the sun, we die. <clears throat> and to me, it's, it's like the glory of God. It's, it's not hidden. You know, the sun is there, and uh, we, we benefit from the sun. And, um, you know, if you look back, you could even say it's still present nowadays, the people who worship the sun, there's people who are more and more into paganism now, and they're worshipping the sun, worshipping the creation rather than the creator. And we should be worshipping the, S- the S-O-N, not the S-U-N. So, um, you know, the, there's beautiful words there to talk about the, the tabernacle of the sun. And like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, that rejoiced as a strong man to run a race, going forth from the end of the heaven and a circle unto the ends of it, and there's nothing hid from the heat thereof. Now, if you read the Quran, you'll find there's a very different description of the sun and the, and the passage of the sun. It says the sun goes across and sets in a, in a muddy pool somewhere on the other side of the world, so I think I'm inclined more to believe what's, what's written here. And, <laughs> amen. So, um, We have this creation that we spoke, we've just spoken about in these, those first six verses. And they tell us something about the majesty and the splendor and the glory of God. But they don't tell us about his character. They don't tell us about his personality. And they don't tell us about perhaps his expectations, his moral law, his expectations of us. And that's, of course, through his word. So the second message in this, in this um, psalm <coughs> is his word. And that's exactly what comes up as we go into verse 7. So if we read verse 7 to 9 there, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, Brother Theo this morning um, touched on Bible numerics, and if you count the, the number of descriptions, there's seven, and seven is a number of completion or wholeness. So there's a completion and a wholeness associated with the Word of God. Now, it's interesting. Again, there's a little bit more numerics for you. Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119. That's like a little bit of a, a, a sequence there for all you mathematicians. All delve into God's law. We can remember Psalm 1, blesses the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So David's got quite a bit to say and he has great reverence for the word of God and particularly in those three Psalms which, which um, are good to read at your leisure. You're reading Psalm 119, you need to put aside probably an hour 
or so because it's very long. Now, another thing that's interesting before we delve into this is there's a really, again, if you stand back and look at this, um, there's three layers. There's this layer of the creation, the universe, and the, the created universe. And then we have this layer, which is God's word. And then when we go a little bit further forward, before we conclude, we'll see the next layer is his God relation to us as individuals and how we are to, to behave and stand before him. And the old, it's like, I don't know if you remember your maths in, in school, it's like the three intersecting circles in your, like A intersection, B intersection, C. The bit in the middle, the common part, is God. God is common to all three. He's the center. And um, it's, good. it's good. It's a good way to actually, I think, just to overview the psalm. Now, verse 7, we'll just go back and reflect on it in a little bit more detail. The law of the Lord is perfect. Now, each of these statements comes then with a, an, an action or a result. So the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And, um, you know, we could say creation tells us a lot about God, but God's word tells us even more about God. And, um, you know, when you hear the word law, we often think of the Mosaic law or the Ten Commandments, and lots of people have different opinions about the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments are perfect. The problem is us, that we can't keep them. And... Um, but here I think we're talking about the full counsel of God. It's not just that it's everything. It's everything of his word. And uh, it says it converts the soul. Now we all here this morning can testify to that. I can testify to that because I've been born again. I've been born again because I heard the word preached and it touched me and I responded to it. And um, you know, the law of the Lord really does convert the soul. And I just flagged another scripture here too, Peter. 1 verse 3. According as his divine power had given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that called us to glory and virtue. Now, not knowledge as the world seeks, but what it gives is true and is perfect. You know, it's... Um, Interesting to um, look on the, the arguments in the world and, and, the, and the conflict that goes on by people who want to deny God and um, so-called, you know, they want to be seen as 21st century and, you know, and they paint the word of God as something that's from the past. And unfortunately, even some Christian ministers do that. They, they talk about, well, the Old Testament is no longer applicable or, or that was for then and or look, there was slavery here, and you know, you know, not taking a correct view of scripture. And but it's interesting that it's not a this is not a science manual, or not a manual that that uh, that or a technical manual as such. But there's nothing in here that's written that's been found to be false in the world. And you know, I can think of things. If you watched the news this week, maybe two weeks ago, not on the mainstream news, of course, but on and biblical or, or Israel news, they discovered the city of Ziklag, or the town of, or the fort of Ziklag, which is um, in Judea. And that was where David, um, and that was a Philistine kingdom, that's where David retreated to when he was being 
pursued by, by King Saul. And, um, you know, many of these things are denied or looked at as, as, as you know, um, fable until they're actually discovered and proved to be correct. And archaeologists, I think, are, you know, they're not necessarily born-again Christians. They're hard-nosed, factual scientists trained in their field. And time and time again, you know, the, the scriptures technically and scientifically are proved to be true because they keep discovering things that, that testify to them. Another one, as I, I've mentioned before, I think here is the Hittites. For years and years, historical accounts said that there was no such thing as the Hittites, that the Hittites were, uh, you know, their tradition or fable or whatever. Although, of course, they just discovered um, artifacts with Hittite inscriptions. And even King David, even King David was supposed to be, uh, you know, a, a legendary and not, not, a, not a real king. Again, it's proved wrong. And, uh, you know, looking at some, and I've, I've seen some of the, the archaeological excavations in Jerusalem, and they right down, they got on a very, very low, they got the foundations of Jerusalem pre-destruction by the Babylonians. And they pull out all these things all the time, and it's daily they're finding more and more things that actually prove that this word is true. So, just as an aside anyway, you can be fully confident in God's um, word, that's what I'm trying to say. So we said it converts the soul, and we are testimony that here this morning, all of us who are born, born again of God, you know, converts the soul. And it revives us and encourages us and it strengthens us. And it's more, it's, it's not an intellectual pursuit. You know, you can't, it's, um, it's a living word. It's not something you, you know, technical manual you memorize or want to be able to impress people by, by producing extracts from or using whatever. It's a living word. It's something that um, somebody else can stand up after me and preach on the same psalm and will have a totally different aspect to it and, and find some other gem or treasure to, to, bring, to bring out. So it's a living word, not an intellectual pursuit at all. There's life in it. Um, the testimony of the Lord is sure. And it makes wise the simple. You know, like I just mentioned a few moments ago, you don't have to be a very high IQ. You don't have to be a high Q, an IQ of 180 or anything to appreciate the word of God. The most simple person can understand what God has said. And I think Pastor Gary said it a few weeks ago, I thought it was a good way of putting it, that it's shallow enough for a child to swim in and deep enough for a theologian to drown himself in. So it's a, it's, um, you know, you don't have to be a member of the Mensa Society or anything to, to, to understand and appreciate the word of God. And it, it's never going to pass. And Matthew 24, verse 35 is another scripture here for you. It says there, heaven and earth shall pass, but my word shall not pass away. So it's um, never changing. It's going to be, be always there. And uh, you know, we work our way through a few more of these. Next verse there, it says, the, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. There's a purity associated with the word of God because it comes from a pure God. 
And um, there's no imperfection in his word. It won't fade. It won't corrode. This fear is the beginning of wisdom, it says in Proverbs. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And um, we study it, we appreciate it. And we find as we do that, we fear and revere him. And, um, you know, the scripture talks also about the, the washing of the word. It does purify us, it does clean us. We turn to the word when we need comfort, when we need um, direction, insight, guidance, whatever. It, it covers all aspects of our walk. And, um, you know, it can, it's pure, but it's presented through human vessels. And, uh, you know, we have to check what people say. We have to be Bereans because it can become impure if it's twisted or, or delivered incorrectly. And, um, you know, we have to, to make sure that we just don't believe everything that people say, that we, that we check it ourselves. So we need to be Bereans. And I guess we, we all know that here this morning. And uh, so the commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean enduring forever and the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether God doesn't do anything wrong you know he hasn't done anything wrong to us probably if we look at our situation this you know the calamities and the trials and the things we find ourselves in are part of the fallen world and probably partly because of our own doing as well because of things we've done but we can't blame God he's true he's righteous and um and his judgments are, are correct always you know David had when we think of it when the, the Psalms were written all of us the book of Psalms probably weren't complete so we, wouldn't, we couldn't say the full book of Psalms he would have had the first five books maybe Ruth and Job and look at his words here what he says what would he say if he had had the full 66 books that we have? What would he say in a book like Romans or one of those real meaty, deep works of Paul? So, you know, we have more. And we've got more to be grateful for. And we have more, more of God's word than he had available to him at the time. We've have, we got the full 66 books of scripture and uh, we truly are blessed to have, to have so. So those are the seven aspects of the word. Now verse 10 is a little change again the theme because it sort of turns the thoughts to the great value of God's word. It says there that more to be desired are they than gold, much more than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. So there's no gold or no material wealth can match God's word. And I think our brother John would have pointed out this morning that people may talk about financial collapse and doom and gloom, but that's not going to affect God's word. And, uh, you know, we're walking with the Lord. We have his word. We have his spirit. And it doesn't matter what comes. Those two things on their own are more, far more valuable than anything this world can throw at us. And that should bring joy to us. And we stop when we we get a bit down or get um, pulled down by these things which we can from time to time just stop and reflect on that reflect on what he says 
in Psalm 19 that, you know, what we have is of great, great value. And it's interesting, if you look at that verse 10 there, he's talking about a material thing. So we've got material possessions in gold, or wealth of this world. And then he talks about honey, sweeter than honey, and the honeycomb. That sort of conveys the thought of sensual pleasures, the things we enjoy in life, the, uh, you know, the things that appeal to the, or gratify the senses. God's word's even above those things. Those things can all pass away as well, can be taken from us. So, um, you know, that's... Um, look at David. David was a, um, you know, he went through an awful lot of turmoil in his life, but he became a powerful and a mighty king and covered a huge, reigned over a huge realm and materially would have been very, very well off. Yet, he is known as a man after God's heart. He's not known for his wealth. And contrast that with Solomon. And Solomon fell away in the end. Solomon is known for his wealth. And uh, perhaps there's a lesson there for us that, you know, the, the more important thing is to be a man after God's heart than to be concentrating on accumulating too much wealth or, or having your attentions um, taken away by, by wealth and by, by things of this world because they're passing. They're passing. Okay, we're working through it now. Verse 11. Moreover by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping them does a great reward. So, um, warning. It's an important word, isn't it? You know, that um, instruction and warning. We need to be warned, because by our own devices we'll go astray. It's the nature of man, the fallen nature of man. We will go astray. And we need to be pulled up and we need to be warned. God's word serves to do that. But it can also be, be um, evidenced through people around us. It can be the prompting of the spirit. It can be God working through people to warn us. So instruction and warning. Or we can learn the hard way. I've learned the hard way for many things. I'm sure all of us here have. So we have a choice really. We can um, listen to what God says or we can ignore and learn the hard way. And that's part of living as well, and part of growing in the Lord, isn't it? So there's warning. What, what, what does the Scriptures warn, warn us about? Well, it's not limited, but certainly warns us about sin that we're prone to. It warns us about dangers perhaps we cannot see or appreciate. It certainly warns us about the future. There's so much prophetic word in the Bible. We're warned about it. We know what's coming. And we ignore it at our peril. And um, you know, the pro- prophetic side of Scripture is, is, is quite incredible. Again, if you want to do the intermats and all, and I won't go into that, but just the prophecy alone, the probabilities involved in fulfilled prophecy, and you know, it, it, you know, any true scientist or mathematician, when he looks at that, should realize straight away that there's something different about this book and about, about what's said in it. So. so the word warns us. There's a saying I heard once, which I think is a good one. It's a Bible in the hand is worth two in the bookcase. So it's a good thing to um, stay close to the Word and stay close to it in daily life. You know, it is a busy life. There's a lot of distractions. But a daily Bible reading habit's a good thing. Stay close to the Word of God and, and um, put the time in and, and um, don't sacrifice it for other things that are important. I always remember there's a, I think it was the, 
one of the um, medical places I was, and the practitioner had a sign on his desk that the the urgent must not displace the important. And um, the reading of the Word of God is important. So those urgent things that come up shouldn't displace the time for the reading of the Word of God. So there's that aspect of warning. Verse 12 is interesting. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. A desire for inward cleansing. And... Um, Perhaps you can read verse 13 under that same theme as well. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Sometimes we sin and we wonder why. It seems to just happen or come so naturally. Sometimes we exaggerate ourselves in views of others. And... Um, we need either the spirit to convict us or we need somebody to tap us on the shoulder and point things out to us. Now, if we ignore those sort of things, those prompts will stumble. And um, these things that happen, you know, whether whether we deliberately sin or whether it's a sin that just seems to come out of our nature, our fallen nature. We're just as accountable for it before God. And, um, you know, it's um, not something that we can excuse ourselves from. So this idea that David said, what about the faults we don't know about? You know, we are... We're blinded to our own nature in many ways. There's things we don't see that others see in us. And uh, those things can be sin, and we don't even know it sometimes. And, you know, we need the, the washing of the word. We need, we, need, um, we need to be aware of those things. We need them pointed out to us. What about the thought of presumptuous sin? I, I guess when you look at that word presumptuous, you think of the word arrogance or pride. So what about things we know better, that people have warned us about, and we still do? So that idea of when we, you know, it's bad enough to sin um, in thought or in word. What about when you actually plan sin or when you, you enter into sin and you know you're doing, you know you're doing something wrong? That presumption's there. And it's actually, perhaps you're behaving like an atheist or behaving like God isn't there, doesn't see us, you know. This idea that we can that we can sin and and uh, be nonchalant about it and that it uh, can be looked over, it's a trap. It's something we have to be aware of. So, presumptuous sin, and um, all of us are guilty of it. If we think and look at ourselves closely enough, we we perhaps do it more often than we realise. You know, we we sin daily, and we need um, we need the forgiveness. We need the grace of God daily, and. Yeah, something to think about, I believe. Presumptuous sin. When I was uh, preparing for this, I, I just found something interesting which I thought is a good um, lesson on what sin and how sin progresses. And I thought it was interesting. I'll just re- relay it to you this morning. But sin, it starts with thought. And 
becomes then there's an object of, of um, meditation or something we want or we meditate on something. It's a thought and then we dwell on that object. And that, that thing we're dwelling on then becomes then a wish to be fulfilled. That wish then to be fulfilled progresses. This progression goes on. It becomes something that, a planned action, something we think about doing. That planned action then becomes, we look for an opportunity. That opportunity then, if we don't quash it, it becomes an act performed. That act performed then can become something that becomes a repeated action. That repeated action becomes something we delight in. It becomes a habit, it becomes an idol, it eventually becomes a bondage. And if you re read in the New Testament, I can't remember the, uh, the reference, but eventually if you keep holding on to it, it'll kill you. It leads to death. And um, while that happens, our spirit and our conscience checks us. And we have that choice to actually to arrest it and to stop. And uh, we'd be wise if we do. I want to read you one, one or two more scriptures. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. There are no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able. You're able. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be, may be able to bear it. And um, 1 John 3, 6 to 9. It says there, Whosoever abideth in him, sinneth not. Whoever, sorry, I'm going to start that again. Whosoever abideth in him, sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth, hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that we might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God do not commit sin, for a seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. And, um, you know, if we walk in the Spirit, we won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh, but can we walk in the Spirit 24-7, I guess is the question. And, uh, but it's evident there from the Word that before we sin, there's always a way out. And uh, we can't say that we couldn't resist or was unavoidable, God does make a way out. And, you know, when you read that, that, that verse in John, you know, it becomes clear that we, you know, we're responsible and uh, we can't just pan that off. Now we're coming to a conclusion. If we address our sin, inward, outward, secret, presumptuous, or the sin that enslaves us, we will be blameless before God. So we need to address it. We can't just let sin be swept under the carpet or deny it. It has to be dealt with before the Lord. And we have to repent. And, um, you know, we'll be repenting of sin until the day we see Jesus. I know some people talk about sinless perfection. I'm not sure. I don't think so. I don't think it'll happen until we see Jesus one day and we're like him. But until that time comes, I think we, we won't be 100%. We might be progressing up to the 99% mark or whatever, but we won't be perfect until he comes. And um, 
Verse 14, again, I think Theo, you quoted this this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Yeah. Can you imagine if that was our prayer every day? You know, we sin a lot, with our, I sin a lot, we all sin a lot with our words. James has a lot to say about that, about controlling the mouth. So let the words of our mouth, so it's not just our mouth, that's the outward, and our heart. Our heart, which is deceptive, and deceitful, and, and um, terribly wicked. That, uh, we have to watch, watch those things. So let that, those words that come out of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable or pleasing to God. And um, who is my strength and my redeemer? And uh, I, I think that's the most beautiful of verses, that verse 14. And of course, it's a lovely chorus as well, and, uh, which I won't sing because you'll all leave. But uh, it is, um, there's so much interest in that verse alone. We want to be acceptable before God. I want to be acceptable before God. I'm sure every believer here does. So just even hold those words before you in the morning and you know, think about what you're going to say and think about what you're meditating on, what's coming out of your heart. And uh, just to draw to con conclusion, well, what can we learn from the psalm? We've got to recognize his creation. We've got to recognize his word. And we've got to recognize our place before him. So we're created beings, created to worship him. So we worship the creator and not the creation. And nowadays, we see the creation being, being worshipped an awful lot. Uh, whether it's in paganism or whether it's the green movement or whatever, they, um, they want to exclude God and they want to elevate his creation above him. And uh, we're not to do that. And that's one of the unique things about Christianity, that God is outside of his creation. And uh, you know, it's a distinctive that makes... Makes, it, uh, makes us what we have more special. We've got to recognize our sinful nature and our desperate need for him. We've got to recognize that our heart and our words are to be acceptable before him. And finally, we've got to recognize, as we just said there in verse 14, that he is our strength, that we can't do it on our own. Amen. So I'll just close on that, and uh, let's just pray in conclusion. Now we thank you, Lord, for your word, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that your word is quick and powerful and is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's so penetrating, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, this morning. I thank you for each brother and sister here. I thank you, Lord, that we would leave, Lord, with a challenge, Lord, that we would be spurred up, Lord, and encouraged, Lord, to, to um, seek you more, Lord, in prayer, Lord, in word, Lord, and to um, 